Well, good morning, church family. Good to be together to worship our crucified and risen Lord Jesus today. Grateful that we can come here today, gather in freedom, and dig into the Word of God. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5 while I allow our kids to be dismissed to Children's Church uh, this morning at this time, all those of Children's Church age. Thank you also for taking part in our deacon nomination process. Um, it's, it's good that it's challenging to think through uh, so many men who are serving and who uh, are pursuing Jesus. And we will take those nominations, uh, go through them, go through an examination process and come back in a, a few weeks with a report to you about four men that were bringing forward for your affirmation. But thank you for taking part in that process this day. So we're back in John chapter 5. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus did that on the Sabbath. And he used that healing as a platform to teach about his equality with the Father. And we saw last week at the beginning of this teaching, really in verses 19 and 20 of the passage we'll look at in just a moment, that he's equal with God in a way that does not rebel against the Father, but submits to the Father. So today we're going to continue to learn about the nature of Christ, specifically in the fact that he gives life and he executes judgment. And these are prerogatives of God alone. And our response should be to honor the authoritative son. I invite you, if you're able, to stand in reverence for the reading of the word of God. We're going to again read from John 5, verses 18 through 29, where the Jews see what Jesus is saying, and then Jesus teaches them further and things that they don't understand. Beginning in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own, own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the father does not honor the. Uh, sorry. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let us pray. 
Father, we pray for a church that honors the Son. I pray, Lord, that we will see Jesus equal to the Father, one who gives life, who changes cold, dead hearts to being alive through the hearing and believing of the gospel of Christ. I pray that we also see that the Son will judge. He has all authority to execute judgment. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in the Son, that we would honor the Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text today presents two truths that correct two major lives, uh, lies believed by so many in our culture. Lie number one is the belief that life can arise from non-life. The year 1859 is an important date. That is the year Charles Darwin published his The Origin of Species. And the resulting theory of naturalistic evolution supplies a competing theory of origins of the universe. But that origin is apart from God. But it's also become a main belief in secular America. And that belief is somehow everything came into being out of nothing. Further, our universe appears to be designed, but it's said to have no designer. And in such a worldview, life can only arise from non-life. And I just think it takes a whole lot of faith to believe that plants and animals and human beings and galaxies and an entire universe can arise out of nothing. I meant to bring a bin of my kids' Legos. We have lots of Legos in our house. And I wasn't actually going to sling them out here, but I was going to say, imagine if I slung out all these different Lego pieces. Do you suppose that what would be formed would be a Shelby Mustang? Or the Eiffel Tower? Or Luke Skywalker's X-Wing? And you would say, no, the only thing that we're going to form if you sling them out would be a mess. Well, when you take naturalistic evolution, those who believe in it, they're not just asking you to believe something akin to slinging out Legos and what is formed is something with great design, they're asking you to believe far more. They're asking you to believe that the Lego pieces themselves came from nothing. So those proponents believe that life arose from non-life. Somehow 8 billion people and 200 billion galaxies exist from nothing. Well, the biblical worldview supplies a different origin of the universe and of species, one that's far simpler and one that also has the benefit of being true. There is a creator, all-powerful God who created everything. Life comes from God. By the power of his spoken word, God created all that is. And he created, the Latin term is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing except God. He spoke, created everything. Now, lie number two. People believe that no one has the right to judge them. 
Now think about this, an increasingly self-focused, self-centered, self-exalting culture. It is believed that no one has the right to judge the self. But I want to ask, is there a connection between lie number one and lie number two? And I think there is. Think about this. The saying was once popular, no one has the right to judge me but God. Used to hear something like that. No one has the right to judge me except God. But it's interesting how those last two words rarely appear anymore. The but God or the except God. It's really devolved into the phrase, no one has the right to judge me, period. At all. And I think those two lies are connected in the fact that if the creator God who gives life exists, then he also has the right to judge. But in a culture where God is rejected outright, the thought is, if there is no God who created, then there is no one who can judge. So I do think those two lies are connected. And that's where many people in our secular world are. But for God, to be God, by definition, one, he must exist. Two, he must be the creator. He must give life. And if so, he also, three, has authority to execute judgment. So that is true of God. That is true of the Father. But here's what Jesus is doing in our verses that we've read today. He is showing it's also true of him. He has life in himself. He gives life to those who believe. And he executes judgment on those who do not believe. And since those are the prerogatives of God alone, Jesus, who we've seen as equal to the Father, is God. So when you see verse 20, the greater works than these will he show him, specifically as Jesus is teaching in this passage, that is one, the life-giving nature of the Son, and two, the authority of the Son to judge all. So in verse 21, it begins with four, four, and shows the life-giving nature of the Father. So we've seen I've said, God is creator. God is the one that gives life. And in two of the Bible's foundational chapters, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we see there God creates all things, and he gives life to human beings. Let me just read Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, in the Old Testament, we see it's always attributed to God as far as the giving of life. Deuteronomy 32, 39 shows God's prerogative in that. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. All right, so let's go into the context of Jesus speaking that day. He is speaking to Jewish opponents who take offense because of some things that he has said, because he healed on the Sabbath, because he made himself equal with the Father. But they would have had no problem with Jesus' words about the Father giving life. They could have amended that part of his teaching. But Jesus didn't just stop there. He adds, 
so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now right there, Jesus makes a massive statement about Himself. He, like the Father, gives life. For the last three weeks, we've read Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11, up here on stage. I want to go to another massive Christological passage in the New Testament. Read from Colossians 1, 16. Speaking of the Son, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Here's Jesus teaching these Jewish, Jewish opponents that he has life in himself and they missed it. And church, we must not. The Son is the agent of creation. Yes, he gives physical life, but we need to go further. He also gives spiritual life. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, makes spiritually dead people alive. And John doesn't want us to miss that. John is recording a gospel so that we can have life in the Son. He begins in the opening of his gospel in verse 4. He says about Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is teaching his Jewish opponents that. He speaks of his sovereign purpose and that he gives life to whom he will. He compares his healing work with that invalid that day with his saving work. Jesus intended to heal this invalid on that day. But not all the multitude that were there that day were healed. Jesus can save all people. Jesus will save some people. But not all people, at the end of the day, will be saved. Not every person ends up in heaven. Now our culture tends to believe that if there is a heaven, virtually everybody except the really, 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 really bad people will be there. Somebody will say, at almost every funeral that you go to, well, they're in a better place now. And that is gloriously true for some people. And that is tragically false for some people. Some are actually in a far worse place. So we cannot buy into the worldly idea that everyone gets a free pass to heaven. Well, then what must we do? How do we get there? How do we receive life? And we need a clear answer to that question. We need clarity. We don't need confusion. We need clarity. To our youth, I would say there was a time where we didn't have maps on a computer on our phone at our fingertips. There was a time, and many people in this room, including myself, drove around with what we called an atlas in our car. How many of you remember the atlas 
in your car. Oh, there's a few, uh, a lot of you in here, actually. So this is a big book with maps of all the states and many of the big cities. Now, if you did not have that atlas and you got lost, guys, you had to do what was a terribly shameful thing for a man. You had to pull over, get out of your car, and go in and ask for directions. And listen, when you did, it was a shot in the dark. You might get somebody who gave great directions. But you also might get someone who, upon hearing their directions, you left far more confused than when you went in. You needed directions. You needed clarity. Well, even more distressing than being physically lost is being spiritually lost. And we need clear direction on how to have life. Jesus is so clear in chapter 5, verse 24, church. I want you to hear what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So clear. This is the second time in this text Jesus has used truly, truly. We said last week Jesus never lies. He always tells the truth. By opening truly, truly, he's calling us to pay close attention. Hear Jesus' word. Believe him who sent him. What does he mean by the word then? What is the word we need to hear? And this is the message about Jesus. It's all he is, all he taught, especially in his incarnation, perfect life, atoning death, resurrection, and his exaltation. We must hear the good news about Jesus. We need to hear. Faith comes by hearing. And we live in an increasingly visual culture, and we're told people can't listen. People can't listen to a sermon. I don't believe that's true. I believe a church can be trained to hear and love and rejoice in God's word. We, we should treasure hearing the good news about Jesus. He, he really did die on the cross, bearing God's wrath for my sins. So if I put my faith in him, I can be saved, be made right with, with a perfectly holy God, me, a sinner. We need to hear that glorious message. And we get great access to the gospel. But at the same time, there are millions Millions of people on planet earth who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. In church, we just can't be okay with that. There are unengaged, unreached people groups who need to hear. May Dixie Baptist be known as a missionary loving and a missionary launching church. Well, why? Because people need to hear and believe to have eternal life. Psalm 96 is a great psalm about the nations. Read Psalm 96 sometime this week. It tells us, verses 3 to 5, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Right now, there are unengaged, unreached people groups who have idols and gods who cannot give life. And they need someone to declare, to proclaim, to tell of God's glory among them. So they can hear the worthiness of their Creator and their redeeming God and believe unto life. They need to hear the Word. Think about how Jesus healed this lame man. Didn't do it by touch. Certainly did not do it by magic. He spoke. He spoke his word and this man was healed. At his word, that man's body was made right. And so God's word, when believed, brings life to dead souls. Here in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. People need to hear. People need to believe. And the the end of hearing and believing is worship of our worthy God. We see in that great Psalm 96 in verses 8 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Oh, that there would be more worshipers of our great God in Hattiesburg and in the nations that comes through hearing the Word and believing. But Jesus uses an interesting phrase here as well. He doesn't just leave it, believe in me. He says, but believe him who, or believes him who sent me. Well, it's the Father who sent Jesus. Why is Jesus pointing to belief in the Father? Well, I don't think we should be surprised at this. In a text that's teaching the unity of the Father and the unity of the Son it shouldn't surprise us at all to, that to believe the Father means to see and treasure the Son rightly. We should honor Jesus. And when we do, we receive life. Now, I don't want you to leave thinking eternal life is merely future or only future tense. Now, I think we do see in this passage, specifically in verse 29, the future resurrection to life. But that life doesn't begin later. It begins now. We see there in verse 24, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So it's not just one day those who believe in Jesus will get eternal life. When we hear the gospel and we believe God and we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, something happens. And what happens is spiritually dead people become spiritually alive through the life-giving Son. That's what this text so gloriously tells us, that believer, you are so different from non-believers. Non-believers don't have spiritual life. They look alive, they're not, they're spiritually dead. But you have a different life. And if you have not 
or have been spared now from judgment, you will never receive it. You will never receive God's wrath. If you have life now, you have it always and can trust that God will raise you one day to be with Him forever. There's a day when all you who are spiritually alive will be raised to that newness of life forever. Last week there was a day that I was home with our two little ones, our littlest ones, while Amanda was gone. One of Amanda's pet peeves is screaming in the house. Typically that doesn't bother me that much. So sometimes when mom is gone, we'll, we'll just let them scream. I shouldn't say we. I. I. Amanda, no. I will. Now, I don't know if you have ever heard kids scream in their high-pitched voices. I'm not asking any kids in the room to do that right now. But if you've heard it, it is loud. It, it hurts your ears. I cover my ears. Now, I could say something like, that screaming would wake the dead. Now, I'm telling you, I don't mean that literally. I really do not think that if we took them across the street to the cemetery and let them scream, that dead people would wake up. I do not think that. That's right, no. Thank you for helping me preach. But I do want to tell you, there will be a trumpet sound one day. And God will raise the dead. See this in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In a moment, that trumpet sound, the dead will be raised to our final resurrection. But that life of the kingdom, even now, believer, invades our lives. Not because of anything in us that brings about life, but because Jesus gives life to His children. Now I said there are two works, two of the greater works of Jesus in verse 20. And we have explored the first, that aspect of Jesus giving life. We need to look at that second aspect as well. Jesus is equal with the Father in that the Father has turned all judgment over to the Son. Folks, we talked about clarity earlier. I want you to see in verse 22 how very clear it is. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, different eras of history have struggled with different truths about God's nature there have been times where people had no trouble believing God was a God of judgment they had more difficulty believing that God was a God of love that is not our time our culture if it believes anything about God readily embraces that he is a God of love however our culture often sees that in opposition to the truth that God is also a God of judgment. We must see Him as both and, not either or. So in the Old Testament, 
Judgment is the realm of God. Abraham said well in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Folks, God's righteous judgment is a reason for worship, not rebellion. In the psalm that I talked about, Psalm 96, where the word goes to the nation, that psalm, uh, the nations, that psalm ends in 96.13b, He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in His faithfulness. So I want you to see a character aspect of God is He is the judge, and He is the righteous judge. This Father who gives life is also the one with the authority to make judgment. And folks, these are not two ideas that are opposed to one another. This is actually two sides of the same coin. And God has entrusted this judgment to Jesus. And if Jesus has life in himself and gives life to whom he will, which we have seen in this text, he also has the authority to judge. Now, interesting, scholars raise the question, Something like, well then how can chapter 3 verse 17 be true and 5.22 be true in the same gospel? And let me take you back to John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in, the, in, in order that the world might be saved through him. So clearly there we see God's purpose was not to send Jesus to condemn the world. But here in verse 22 we see... All authority has been given to Jesus to execute judgment. How do we reconcile those ideas? Well, first, these are not in conflict with one another. This is not a problem. Remember, two sides of the same coin. Jesus came for the purpose of saving people, and he will save many people. Many people will come to faith in Jesus, and He will give them life. But if He gives life to those who accept Him, He must also give judgment to those who reject Him. Two sides, same coin. Well, why is it important then that all judgment belongs to the Son? Why didn't the Father keep the judgment? Why does He turn it over to the Son? And really because of who He is. Because He is equal with the Father. Jesus is unique. He is one of a kind. He is, as He says here, the Son of Man. We've seen different titles for Jesus even in His teaching. Son, we saw Son of God, and now we see Son of Man. That's where His authority stem from, stems from. And Jesus is taking us all the way back to Daniel 7. And we see in there this massive two verses that tells us so much about who Jesus in Daniel's timeline will be and who Jesus is looking back as he is. So here this ver these two verses. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Because He is equal to the Father, Jesus is the life-giving, but also judgment-rendering Son. Last week I told you about the State of Theology survey released by Ligonier Ministry and told you about one of the statements there and whether people stood on that time or, or that spectrum of agreeing or disagreeing. I was, re- I was surprised as I looked at their 21st statement in terms of the response to it. Here's the statement. There will be a time when Jesus Christ returns to judge all the people who have lived. I was surprised to learn that 64% somewhat or strongly agreed with that statement. Maybe intuitively, we know that this holy God is also righteous judge. Well then, what should we do? What should be our response to this incredible, unique, equal to the Father, Son, Jesus Christ? How then should we respond to Him? In this text, we see we should honor the Son. Verses 22 and 23 are so important. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That, here's the logical outflow from that, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It is impossible to honor the Father and dishonor the Son. I want you to think about Jesus' audience that day. These are Jewish religious leaders. They would have been first in line to say, no, no, we honor the Father. We honor God. What Jesus is showing that if they reject him, if they fail to honor him, they do not honor the Father. It is impossible to choose one or the other. It is hard to hear in a culture of such tolerance that Jewish people who reject Jesus or Muslims who reject Jesus or any other monotheistic religion that rejects Jesus, they do not and cannot honor God. But that is the truth. We need to see the Son Jesus in the right light to truly honor the Father. And the right response is to honor the Son. But last week I also warned us about cultural distortions of Jesus. I stress we need a biblical view of Jesus and how and, and we're seeing that. We saw it last week. He's equal to the Father. He doesn't rebel against the Father, but submits to the Father. We see this week he's the life-giving Son who's also the judgment-executing Son. We need this robust, full picture of who Jesus is. But so often in so many churches, we see this nature of Jesus watered down almost to a lowest common denominator of believing. And almost on cue... I read an an article that really distressed me this week. It was written by Shane Morris. I believe it was at the Gospel Coalition website. But it was about Derek Webb, 
who has written a song entitled, Boys Will Be Girls. In that song, he affirms the possibility of gender transition and dressing as the opposite gender. Now you say, well, that's not surprising. We just came out of Pride Month. We're seeing that type of message everywhere in our culture. Yes, we are. But here's the surprising part. One of the big Christian bands from 20 to 30 years ago was a band called Cademan's Call. Now, if you go back to my days as a youth pastor or just before or around those days, that was a major Christian band. Derek Webb, who released this song recently, Boys Will Be Girls, was the lead singer in that band. And here's a big issue, not just with the song itself, which is extremely problematic, but the name of the album is entitled The Jesus Hypothesis. So not only does he affirm gender transition, but argues that Jesus is for it. And really goes on to say that believers don't celebrate that lifestyle. They're believing lies. You don't have to put the, don't put the words up there, Zach. I'm just going to read some of the words from that song. A verse in it. I heard Jesus loved and spent his life with those who were abandoned by proud and fearful men. So if a church won't celebrate and love you, they're believing lies that can't save you or them. Tragically, it's this song that proclaims lies about Jesus. Now listen, we should yearn that every person struggling in the area of gender confusion be saved. We should yearn for that. We should share the gospel Because I believe that lifestyle, if we're unclear about something so concrete as gender, the confusion and misery that's in that life, we should be compassionate and yearn for those folks to be saved and do gospel proclamation. At the same time, we cannot go against the truth of God's Word. We can't affirm sin. As Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. Jesus will raise all to a resurrection. All people are going to be raised to a resurrection. The good news is some will be raised to eternal life. But there's another side. There's another aspect of resurrection some will be raised to a resurrection of judgment who are those folks well John has spoken in 319 about those Jesus terms here in verse 29 those who have done evil all those who have done evil doesn't matter what kind of evil all who have done evil and failed to repent going back to John 319 and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. Some people continue in their sin. And we desire that all who are in darkness come out. 
But we cannot call darkness light, and we cannot call sin virtue. Because the way to be saved is to believe Jesus' word, to believe in the life-giving, judgment-executing Son. We cannot believe in a cultural caricature of this Jesus, but the biblical picture of Jesus. And here is such good news that all people, regardless of their sin, if they will turn to the life-giving Jesus Christ in faith, will be forgiven, not of most of their sins, but gloriously of all their sins. And they will be made spiritually alive in Christ. What should we do? Because many of us are in here who have been forgiven of all of our sins. Some so shameful that we would prefer nobody knew all those sins. What should we do in response to this glorious son who died on the cross so that our sin could be forgiven? How should we respond to this glorious Jesus who is our only hope in life and death? Honor, glorify the Son, Jesus. All right, so here is the Father, God, who deserves all worship, all glory, all honor. How then can Jesus say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father? In light of a verse like Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. If God doesn't share his glory with Baal or Molech or the almighty dollar or worldly popularity, if God does not share his glory with another, how can Jesus be right about him being deserving of honor. It is anchored in the truth that Jesus has taught throughout this passage. He is equal with the Father. He is not a competitor for God's glory. He is one who is God who shares in that glory. And so we will close with some of those verses that we've read now for three weeks in Philippians chapter 2. Here, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. To honor the Son does not diminish the honor of the Father. To honor the Son is to honor the Father. So will you live your life for the honor of Jesus Christ? That's a question we ask for the next few minutes as we go into the invitation. But it's also more importantly a question I ask of you as you walk out that door. Will you live for the honor of Jesus Christ? Will you live for his glory? Father, we thank you for a passage such as this. We thank you for a gospel as glorious as this. We thank you for the Son, Jesus Christ, 
who is so wonderful, so beautiful, so glorious, that I think we are going to spend all of eternity learning at deeper levels about His glory. And today I pray for our people that we would live in light of the fact that we live for a glorious King Jesus, that we would live for His honor. Pray for those that have not yet turned to Jesus. I pray they would. I don't care what sin they're in that they would turn to Jesus, the rescuer from every sin. I pray with those who may be struggling with sin, that our believers, that you would give them victory by first and foremost seeking the honor of the Son. I pray for those who are going through maybe difficult health or family or life situations, that they would see that honoring the Son fuels their ability to persevere in the midst of those situations. The application for us from this sermon is in every circumstance, every situation of life, to honor the Son, Jesus Christ. May Dixie Baptist Church be a people who do that regularly, who make that the desire of their lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.